Philippians chapter 1, starting at the end of verse 18. Philippians chapter 1, starting at the end of verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Let me pray. Lord, we, we ask that You would illumine our minds so that we would understand Your Word, that You would turn on the lights for us so that we would see the truth that our hearts would rejoice in it. We'd be repentant before it. We would examine our lives and then not stop there, but look to Christ and see Him. Our hope, our righteousness, our joy, that we would be changed by Your Word, that we would not take it lightly, but that we would be thankful for the privilege this morning of receiving Your grace through Your Word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what is the source? What is the source of joy in life? What is the source of joy in life when you're in the midst of suffering? What is the source of joy in life when you're in when you're going to die as the culmination of suffering? To answer that question, really is to answer the same question, what is what is it to uh have joy in God in life and death? Those are the same questions. The answer is the same. True joy in life and death is found in worship of Christ. That True joy in life and death is found in worship of Christ. In Christ being the center of our affections and our thoughts and our actions. This is why... Um, I would say the true worship is making much of Christ. It's Him being made large in our lives. Of Him being magnified in our lives and in our death. That's worship. And that's where joy is found.
Worship is making much of Christ. You hear that? It's Christ being made much of in our lives and in our death. That's worship. That's where joy is found. That's why I need Sunday morning so desperately. That's why I have to come and gather with you on Sunday morning so badly. I, I can't wait when Sunday's over for the next Sunday to come. You know why? You know why is it just because I'm a guy who loves the Ten Commandments and just really desperately wants to keep the Fourth Commandment because I just, I'm afraid of God's anger toward me if I somehow stay home and watch football. And so that's why I have to be here Sunday morning or that somehow my righteousness is found in being here Sunday morning, coming together with you, because I just I want to make sure that I keep the Lord's day where everybody else is forgetting. You know, though they're doing this and they're going to work. And is, is that what it is? As if somehow this day, corporate worship, this gift was given to me, um, or in other sense, was given because I was made for it? As if I was created so the other six days don't matter so I could just get to this day because this is what I was made for? No, this day was made for me. Do you hear that? This day was made for you. Why did God do that? Why did God give us this day of corporate worship? Because this somehow defines all that worship is? As if, if we do the right liturgy, as if we do the right exuberant singing, as if, if the preaching is just right, then, then worship happened. Yeah, that's worship. But the reason he gave us that is not because this defines worship. It's because offering our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, defines worship. And this day, this time, is necessary for the recharging of us for god to extend grace to us so that we continue in that battle this time is necessary for us to rejoice in him and be ready to walk out of this moment to the next into the battle striving side by side for the advance of the gospel of jesus christ no matter what the enemy brings our way that is why i desperately look forward to this day that's why because I want my life to be about worship of Christ. Because that's where my joy is found. I can't tell you this week, as I've watched my wife suffer, how much I looked forward to this morning to be with you all, worshiping our God and getting ready for that fight, to be recharged, to receive His grace. This isn't about me coming here to perform or you coming here to perform some religious duty. This is about us coming and receiving the grace of God so that we worship him every moment of every day, regardless of the battle that comes our way, so that the gospel advances, so that he is glorified. I say this to let you know that when I talk about worship, joy-inducing God-magnifying worship. I'm not talking only about Sunday morning. I'm talking about my whole week. But I certainly am not excluding Sunday morning. Let let me break down what joy-inducing, Christ-magnifying worship is with three three simple points from uh, Paul's text here. Three simple points from Philippians that anchor Paul's joy. He writes about that anchor his joy in the midst of his suffering. 
Three points anchor his joy in the midst of suffering. The first one is, is faith in Christ. You hear that? Confidence, faith, trust in Christ. Look what he says at the end of verse 18. This is grammatically connected to verse 19. Yes, and I will rejoice. Why? For, because. Here's the cause of my rejoicing. For I know. What does he know? For I know that. Here we go. Through your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, this, excuse me, this will turn out for my deliverance. You hear that? I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. That's the main idea of the text here. I know, I rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. Through the help of the Holy Spirit who comes to me on the basis of your prayers. Who's supplied because of your prayers for me. What is Paul saying? He is in prison. He's chained to prison guards. He's in suffering. He's humiliated within the cultural context. He doesn't know how it's all going to end. Am I going to be put to death at the end of this? Am I going to live through this? I don't know. Here's what I know. I rejoice. Why? I rejoice because I know this. This will turn out for my deliverance. What does he mean there? He is actually um, quoting Job, chapter 13. And how is he quoting him? He's quoting him from the LXX. What is the LXX? The Septuagint. You're going, oh, that's helpful. Thanks, Chad, for defining the LXX. The Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament that happened before the birth of Christ. They translated the Old Testament into Greek before the birth of Christ. At one point, Job's friends have been making accusations. All of this has been going on because, as you know, most of you, Job is this man whose family was wiped out, whose fortunes were taken, whose whole life was wrecked, his health was wrecked. And his friends came and started saying, well, what sin did you commit, Job? What happened in your life, etc.? And in Job 13, he says this phrase in Greek, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. And that's what Paul's citing there. I will rejoice in the midst of sufferings. Why? Because it will turn out for my deliverance. And what does he mean? Does he mean being freed from prison? No. That word is the word for salvation. His final vindication. Hear that? Look what he goes on to say. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. What Paul is saying here first is that he has faith in Christ. That's why he rejoices. And he has faith that Christ will finally vindicate him. That on that great day when Jesus Christ returns, he will be vindicated. He will be saved. It's what he says in 2 Timothy 4, just before his death, he says this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Hear that? To all who have loved his appearing. I rejoice because I know. I rejoice in my suffering because I know. I don't, I don't know if I'm going to get out of prison. I'm going to live or die. But I know I will be vindicated on that great day. I know when I stand before the Lord, He will give me 
the crown of righteousness. I know that. I know that in the midst of my suffering, when people are making accusations, I know that I don't have to worry about my reputation. I focus on the reputation of Christ. Christ takes care of my reputation. Christ will exalt me on that great day if I am humble now and see my need for him. That's what Paul has faith in. Second is faith in Christ, not only for the finished race, not only for the final vindication, he has faith in Christ that, his, that Christ's work is being magnified in his life now. I, I, I don't just know that, Jesus, you will save me on that great day. I know and, and magnify yourself in me and let me receive glory with you. I don't just know that. I know that even now, even now you are working in me and you will be magnified in my body. I know that even now. He goes on and says this. He says, look, as it is my eager expectation, verse 20, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. When he says my eager expectation and hope, he's talking about something that's certain that he knows. It's not like, well, I hope the Lakers win tomorrow night. Like we use hope that way, right? What he's saying is, it is my hope. I know this. It is my eager expectation. It is certain that Christ will be magnified in my body. That I will not be ashamed. Why? Because Christ is doing a work in me. A progressive work in me. Look at the grammar of this text. It's very interesting in verse 20. First he starts off saying, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. When I stand before God, there won't be shame. There won't be. Just vindication glory he says but that with full courage now as always christ will be honored in my body it's an interesting phrase i will not be at all ashamed you would think he would then go on and say and i will magnify christ in my body right keep it in the first person make the verb himself the subject of of the action of the verb right i will not be ashamed i will magnify that's not what he says i will not be ashamed why because christ Who's the subject? He's the one doing the action of the verse. Christ will be magnified in my body. That he changes the subject here. Christ will be the one doing this work who will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. That is coming off of Philippians 1 6, when he tells the church this, and I'm sure of this, that he, God, Jesus, who began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion of the day of Christ Jesus. He began the work, he continues the work, he will finish the work. That's what Paul says. I'm not going to be ashamed because Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. If you go to the end of Jude, right before Revelation, the the last book before Revelation, Jude ends with this great thing. Now to him who is able, this doxology, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless. Who keeps you from stumbling and presents you blameless? Not you. God does. Jesus does. Keep you, present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord. Be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forevermore. At the end of 1 Thessalonians, Paul says this, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. Who does this work so that Christ is magnified in your body now? So that He's made large is what this word literally means. 
This word here, literally, he's made large in your body, in your life. Who will do this work? God of peace himself will sanctify you. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Who will? He will. Paul knows that. My confidence, my faith is in Christ and so I have joy because he will vindicate me on that final day. And even now, not just then, even now, even now, he will be magnified in my body. I have confidence in him that he will be. And how will he be? Why do I have this? I have confidence further that this faith goes further. I have faith in Christ that he will answer the prayers of his church to supply the Spirit so that my sanctification, my growth in holiness, my being kept for the magnification of Christ is ensured. Hear that? I have confidence. I know. I have faith in Christ. He'll answer these prayers. Look what he says at the beginning. For I know that through your prayers, there's that through. I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. It's my eager expectation and hope I'll not be at all ashamed, but Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. And I know that this will happen through your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit. Hear what he says? I know that God answers the prayers of his people. I can say, you know what? God did it. God does it. God will do it. God saved you. God will keep you. God will vindicate you. However, please do not think that that means that you lack any responsibility in it. Because the fact is that God not only declared the ends, He declares the means. And the means to those ends are our prayers. And Paul knows that while he's in prison, he is rejoicing not only because he believes in the promises of God ultimately, but because he knows the Philippian church is praying for him and that God will answer their prayers because he promises to. And what are they praying for? They are praying for the Holy Spirit to be supplied to him to help him. And what he's saying is, I know that as you pray, as you pray, God will supply the Spirit of God to me to help me. I know that. I don't lack any confidence in that. I need you to do that. See, Paul understood we're in a war. You know that? We're in a battle. The moment you get saved, it isn't the beginning of this incredibly blessed and peaceful life in which you never ever struggle or have battles or are in a a real war. Because the moment you you are saved, you become saved. You become united to Christ and you are part of his mission and you are on his team and Satan will attack you vigorously. And we are promises throughout scripture. He wants to wreck you. Hear that? And he will come at you unrelentingly. And the world and the flesh will not be your help. You're in a battle. Whether you recognize it now or not, you are in a battle. You may not see, I said this last week, you may not see and hear the bullets flying by, but you are in a war. It may not have come to your particular foxhole today, but it will. It might be in your neighbors right now. And you should be praying for them. It's coming to yours, so you should be preparing for it. So that you would stand firm. Paul knows, I need you to pray for me. I need you to. And as you do, God will supply His Holy Spirit. The the interesting thing about this term is the way it's being used here. It's like, I'm in a conflict. If you get at the end of um, that that chapter, 
He says it's been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. I'm in a battle and you will be with me as well. And you better be praying. I think we see prayer. Uh, Pipe, John Piper, a pastor in Minneapolis, he, he made this comment. We see prayer too often like it, we're sitting in our living room, turning on an intercom, asking for God, our servant, to bring us something. Right? Um, I would like some more pleasure and joy um, and help. I'd like some more furniture and I'd like some nicer clothing. And uh, you know what? Could you bring me um, a spouse and could you bring me some kids and could you bring me health for everyone around? And can, what, what else, uh, you know, like as if God is just there waiting at the other side of the intercom, I can't wait to serve my Lord in their living room. That isn't, that isn't what prayer is. Piper went on to say that prayer is more like a walkie-talkie given to every one of the soldiers who are on the front line with which they have constant contact with the general. And they can say, you know what, general? This war is hard. I need more supplies. Send them. I need help. Send the supplies. That's what prayer is. That's what prayer is. Prayer is this walkie-talkie between you and God in which you can say to him, Lord, supply me help now. I am on the front line of this battle and I need more supplies. And you know what he'll do? He will send his spirit. He will pour him out to help you. That's what we should be praying for. Paul had confidence in that. He knew his church was praying for him. He knew God would supply the spirit. Confidence in that. We should be the same. We should be beseeching the Lord for each other. We should be pleading with Him, not as those in a living room pushing the intercom asking for more things, but as those on the front lines of a battle trying to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, asking for His help. And if we did that, we might see prayers being answered more than we do. Paul has joy because he's confident God will send the Spirit and supply what he needs. Second, Paul has not only faith in Christ, but his fellowship with Christ. Fellowship with Christ. Look what he says in verse 21. Christ is going to be magnified and made large in my you know, body, whether by life or death. Why? For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I know him. I have fellowship with him. He's mine. Look at what John says it this way. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We, through faith in Christ, by no credit of our own, no merit of our own, but simply through faith in Christ, a work that God does in us to give us this gift, to see the light of the gospel, the good news of the glory of Christ, so that we turn from our self-righteousness, our thoughts that somehow we have any hope before God in and of ourselves. We recognize that we deserve condemnation and that's it. So that we turn from our self-righteousness. We flee from the condemnation that's ours and flee to Christ who is our only hope. 
who paid our penalty on the cross, who lived our perfect life in our place, who rose from the dead to give us life, who's at the Father's right hand, ever interceding for us. We run to Him, and when we do through faith, we are united to Him. We have communion with Him. We have fellowship with Him. That's what Paul says. I have not only faith in Christ, I have fellowship with Christ. Not just now. He gives two parts to this. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I have fellowship with Christ now. But I will also have fellowship with Him, even greater, greater fellowship with Him when I die. Paul says it this way in Philippians 3. I want to know Christ. Hear that? I want to know Christ and the fellowship of His sufferings. How do you know that knowing Jesus, fellowshipping with Christ is what your life's about? How do you know? I mean, how do I know that that's what my life's about? How do you know if Christ is your life, as Paul says in Colossians 3, when Christ, who is your life, appears? Here's how you do it. You fill in the blank. For to me, to live is blank. What goes there? Christ or job or marriage or child-rearing? For to me, to live is what? Success? Respect from other people? And pastors have to ask ourselves, for to me, to live is fulfilling my dream as a pastor? To see the kind of church that I hope to plant or lead? For to me, to live is what? What if you can't answer the question? You know, I'm, you know, I'm not sure. I think it might be Christ. I'd like to say it's Christ, but I don't know. You, know. you know what the next question is? What steals your joy from you? When it's taken from you, does it, when things are taken from you that you currently have, does it steal your joy? I, I wrote this, Acts 29, a group of guys that I'm a part of, pastors that are planting all over the country, we have been in a, um, what we call now the new normal. We don't call it a season of ministry. We're calling it the new normal. Um, a time of intense suffering in the battle. It isn't a season that we're hoping will pass. It is the new normal that we hope we will endure through for the advance of the gospel. And in the midst of that, um, I'm one of the people um, that is the center of attention for the pastors in prayer and concern, um, my family situation, as well as um, Matt Chandler, pastor in Texas who, who had um, a brain tumor on his frontal lobe and had surgery Friday, um, seven-hour surgery, which they removed the tumor, um, which he lived through and which he woke from and recognized the doctors and everything else, which is good, but he's still waiting because they don't know what the outcome is going to be as far as whether it was malignant or benign or whatever. But Matt Chandler is one of the concerns, one of my friends, and we're concerned about him, um, as, lo- as well as a guy named Thomas Young. Um, we're concerned about his church. Thomas is a pastor in Acts 29, who many of you heard last week, um, came home. He had found out that his wife had been having an affair and he sent a letter to his congregation, an email to his congregation saying, my, I found out my wife's having an affair. I'm sorry I failed you. I'm going home to be with the Lord. The elders got the email, showed up at, the church, at his house, and while he was locked in the bedroom, appealed to him to come out. Um, he was locked in the bedroom with his wife, at which time he took a gun to his head and killed himself in front of his wife with the elders of the church outside the door, devastating the church and a group of pastors. Devastated. All of us. 
My, my wife in tremendous suffering, devastating. Pastors in our network to see what's happening. And we're all coming alongside one another and we're asking, some of the guys are asking, how do we, how do we in the midst of what Chad's going through or what happened to Thomas when his wife did, how do we keep ourselves from getting to that point, putting the gun to our head? How do we avoid that? And, and I responded, and I'm going to read you a little bit of my response um, because I talked about the fact that for us to live has to be Christ or else we will put a gun to our head in those situations. Here, here, here's what I said. When I'm reading my Bible and praying, I ask God to show me where for me living is something other than Christ. I look at all the major responsibilities and people in my life that bring me joy and all the major frustrations and losses that have brought me grief. My church and my family bring me joy. People interfering with either of them bring me grief. I think it's okay that I find joy in these and that I'm angry or saddened in some way when they're taken. However, my joy in these gifts, when I have them, and my anger or sadness when they're removed, should not be the kind of joy that rests on the gifts of lo- alone and not um, the giver. Or the kind of sadness or anger that caused me to curse God for their removal. Job rejoiced in his family and was profoundly saddened when they were taken from him. But his response was, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. When my joy rests on the gifts of loan and not the giver of them, then the loss of them will reveal sinful responses and despair. As with Job's wife, curse God and die. As in Thomas's situation, I cannot go on living any longer. Did you catch that test? Two parts. What gives me joy? How do I react when that is threatened? If I react sinfully, then it's an idol. For me to live is that thing. So as I have watched my wonderful and glorious bride suffer immensely, and as I have watched my own actions and attitudes in response, I have seen that my marriage is an idol. Having a great family and children is an idol for me. I've even caught myself praying that God would help kill my idolatry of my children so that I would not have to suffer the loss of them. Notice, I wanted the idolatry dead so I could save the idol. I did not ask the Lord to kill my idolatry so that no matter what happened to my children or my wife, I would rejoice in Christ. I did not have real joy. I did not have, and this is what I wrote to these guys, I did not have real joy and peace in my current situation until I stopped praying. Until I stopped praying. Okay, God, I've learned my lesson. You can restore my wife now. I had to stop praying that. And started praying, Lord, if this is your will, from this day to the last day, I will be content and rejoice. For to me, to live is Christ. See, this is Paul's comfort. Look at what he says in Philippians 3 through 8, or 7 through 8. He says this, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss 
for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, garbage, manure, feces is what he's saying here. That what? I may gain Christ and be found in Him. You hear what he's saying? Paul's hope of righteousness, his joy, his comfort, was, past tense, in his family heritage, in his um, being a Jew, in his being a Pharisee, in his being zealous for the law, where it was found. He said, it's all garbage now. It's all, it's all, that was my prize. It's all garbage now. I just want to know Christ. Compared to knowing Christ, dung, refuse. That's all it is. Can you say, uh, my marriage, my marriage is refuse, dung, compared to the surpassing worth, greatness of knowing Christ. My parenting, my success in business, my morally good life are garbage. Garbage. Counted as loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Uh, let me ante it up for you. Um, those of you who knew um, these things, you're not, you know they're not supposed to be your righteousness or your hope or your joy, but, but you're good theologians. Let me ante it up for you. Can you say your love of good theology and hatred of errant theology are counted as garbage, rubbish, dung, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord? Now, you might answer, how can you argue that my good theology and my hatred of error is an idol? How could you argue that? Well, go to Revelation chapter 2 and read about the church in Ephesus. They hated the evil doctrines of the Nicolaitans. They hated it. They had great theology. And what does Jesus say to them? I commend you that you hate the error of the Nicolaitans. I commend you that you have such good theology. But you, this I have against you, you have forgotten your first love. You know what John Stock goes on to say about that? He, he makes his comment, his pastor from England, goes on to saying that having that hating false doctrine is not the same thing as loving Jesus. Your systematic theology did not die on the cross for you. The person of Jesus Christ did. But don't get me wrong, I'm not saying you should, shouldn't have a right systematic theology. You should. You should. But you're not saved by your theology. You're saved by the person and work of Jesus Christ. Do you know Him? Do you love Him? Do you rejoice in Him? Can you say, I could be stripped of it all and Jesus would be enough? I would still rejoice. Compared with the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, my marriage is dung. Compared with the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, my health is dung. My children are dung. Refuse, garbage compared to knowing Surpassing greatness of Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's where my joy is, ultimately. They are gifts that point me to, my give, to the giver. They are not idols to be worshipped. You, you know, 
I want you to know, though, you may not say, I haven't arrived there yet. It's progressive. Be patient. You won't get there. You won't be perfect in that until at which point you see the perfect one face to face. Between now and then, it's progressive. You grow in it. It takes time. Be patient. You pursue him. You get in his word. You pray. You get together with believers, other believers. You help one another. It takes time. Even Paul says, in talking about wanting to know Christ, everything's done comparatively. He goes on and says, not that I've already obtained all this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Do you hear that? I haven't arrived yet, but I am pressing forward, making it my own because Christ has made me His own. Third, um, not only, or excuse me, let me, say, let me say this. Not only, before I go to the third point, not only do we have fellowship with Christ now, not only is that his hope for to me to live as Christ, but we have fellowship Christ, with Christ in the future, and to die is gain. So he says, some people believe in this thing called soul sleep. I'm not sure why it would be gain to be in soul sleep. Right? I'm not sure why Paul would go on to say, it's better for me to die so I can depart and be with Christ. He doesn't say, it's better for me to die so I can go into the grave and sleep until Jesus returns. Right? He also says in 2 Corinthians 5, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Paul's saying, look, this life I have with Christ, there's my joy. Faith in Him. Fellowship with Him. There's my joy in Him. But I don't have fellowship with Him now. I will have fellowship. Great, sweet, perfect, unending, eternal fellowship with Him in which my joy will ever increase for eternity with Him when I die. So for me to die is gain. It's not just gain over the fact that I'm in prison and suffering now. It is gain over the best circumstances of my life. I see couples getting married and at their wedding day looking like this is the greatest day of their life. Let me tell you, compared to seeing Christ, it's refuse. Even in that moment, you should be able to say, to die right now is gain. Because I get to see him in all his glory. Third, not only is it faith in Christ and fellowship with Christ, it's following Christ. Look what he says in verse 22. He says, to, for me, to me, is to live as Christ and to die as gain. He goes on to say this. If I am to live in the flesh, in other words, he doesn't know. If I'm to live in the flesh, it means keep on in my physical life. He doesn't mean flesh here is a sin principle. He's talking about his physicality if, in the body. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. In other words, I can do fruitful labor. I can continue ministering the gospel and you guys will grow from it. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. By choose, he doesn't mean which do I desire. Okay? So by cannot tell. In other words, that word cannot tell, he's talking about knowledge. It hasn't been revealed to me. I don't know what God has for me. If I'm to live in the flesh, that'll mean fruitful labor for me. If I'm to get out of prison and live among you, that'll be fruitful labor. But if I am to be tried, found guilty, and killed, right, that'll be gain. Look what he goes on and says. 
I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far <coughs> better. Hear that? You, you know what his desire is. He's not saying, I can't figure out which one to choose, but I want to be with you. Or I want to... No, he wants to depart and be with Christ. We know what his desire is. He doesn't know what God is going to do. He doesn't know whether he can get out of prison or not. But he knows this. It's interesting. He knows his God, and he knows his God desires the good of his people. Right? And Paul knows, if I'm going to be like Christ, be like him, then my main concern needs to be the, purpose, the, the, the good of others. And so even though it's gain for me to be with Christ, to die, to depart and be with him, I, I think God's going to keep me around for your sake. Look what he goes on and says. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I'll remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. In other words, not only does he have faith in Christ, not only does he have fellowship with Christ, he, ha- he is following Christ. Hear that? He's following him. He wants to live as he did. To, for me to die, to depart and be with Christ is far better. But you know what? I'm convinced it's better for you if I stay. And so I'm going to stay for your progress and joy in the faith. That's my ultimate concern. Not me, you. I mean, how many of us say to ourselves, you know, before I make this decision about my life in the future, I ought to ask myself the question, what's the best thing for the body, the church that I'm involved in? What would be best for them? Before I choose to leave town for a career, to, before I choose to do this or that, what would be the best thing for the body that I'm involved in? What would be the most, that's, that's essentially what Paul's doing. What's the best thing for the church I'm a part of? What's the best thing for the church at Philippi? Not what's the best thing for me. For me, it's to depart and be with the Lord by far. What's the best thing for them? That's what Jesus did, you know that? In the Garden of Gethsemane? Father, take this cup from me. Right? Take it from me. I don't want to feel your wrath. Not my will, but thine be done. Why? I want your will. I want the I want the salvation of your people. You sent me here for them. I'm gonna give my life for them. They're my ultimate concern. May, advancing the gospel. In this interesting word he uses for your progress and joy in the faith. That's the same word he used when he's talking about the gospel advancing earlier in this text. Brackets the whole thing. Paul's concern is the advance of the gospel among unbelievers and among believers. Hear that? For their progress and joy in the faith. He's concerned about their joy. I rejoice because I have faith in Christ. I rejoice because I fellowship with Him. I rejoice because I'm following Him and seeking your joy. In other words, Paul says, my joy is that you would advance in joy in the faith so that you'll glory in Christ. I want to follow Christ in, make, in making others joy in Christ, the joy of my life. And as I do, I will receive great joy in the midst of difficult circumstances in the battle. What is more, encu- you know, what is more encouraging in a battle than saving a friend? If you're at war and you're in the midst of a battle <clears throat> and you're there and you save a friend, you save their life, is there anything that encourages you more in that ongoing battle than that? I can't imagine anything would. Paul's saying is, 
Listen, I have joy because I get to follow him. And, and, and I get to see your joy in the faith progress. So I'll suffer. I'll fill up the afflictions that we're lacking in Christ for the sake of his body. Because I want to see them progress in their joy in faith. Paul says this in Acts 20, verse 24. He says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Let me pray. Lord, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for its truth, for what it tells us about you. We pray that we would be a people who rejoice in you, who know that you are our hope, that vindication is ours, that you will magnify, you will make yourself great in our lives now, or that you will work through our prayers for one another to supply us the Spirit, to help us finish this race, or that you have given us great union, communion, fellowship with you, and Lord, that you have called us to follow you, Account our lives worth nothing to finish the race, to make known the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that we would be people who rejoice in this great privilege. And you, our great King, ultimately, that we would worship you. And that's where our joy would be found. In your name we pray. Amen.